I'd like to talk to you about the Ten Commandments, seeing as how that's a central portion of today's Torah portion. And I need to give you some background. Most of you have heard this already, so I'm just going to go over it quickly. The Ten Commandments are the third set of tens in Scripture. The first set of tens is the words of creation. When God says, let there be, and so forth, you have ten words of creation. Then you have ten plagues, which are ten destructions. So what God is doing with the ten plagues is he's backing out the first creation, and now we have ten words again where he is starting humanity over. What we've got at Sinai is essentially a marriage contract where God brings Israel to the foot of the mountain and you have a formal proposal where God, by way of an intermediary, Moses, makes an offer to Israel. Moses takes the offer down to Israel. Israel accepts the offer. And then what you have in the Ten Commandments, if you will, it's a legal document. So when it starts off, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and so forth, that is by way of defining for the document who the husband in the covenant is. Then we have a description of the bride. The bride is described in negative terms. She is not a murderer. She is not an adulteress. She is not covetous. She is not a thief. So what you have is a list of negative descriptions of the bride and what most people in Christianity don't understand is that negative description in fact bestows upon the bride the most freedom possible. So as long as you're not a thief, you're not a murderer, you're not an adulteress, you're not covetous and so forth, you can be anything you want. You can be a doctor or a lawyer or an Indian chief, it doesn't matter. All of the things that are now open to you as a result of that negative definition are everything that God has created. Just don't murder, don't be a thief, don't be a liar, don't be covetous. Honor your parents and honor me. That's it. It is extremely freeing, but of course, it's sort of like we go back to the garden. you got the whole garden in front of you except that tree. Can't have that tree. So what is the first thing we do? <laughs> go over and grab the thing that we can't do. So again, it's a negative space where God carves out for himself a very small negative area, and he says, everything else is yours. Go enjoy. That's not enough for us. So what happens on the third day, and interestingly, one of the things it says is, you shall not cohabit between those three days. Not a problem with cohabitation. The problem is we are about to consummate the marriage with God. That's the whole purpose of speaking at the foot of the mountain. God wants to speak his word into the heart of his bride. We get to the first two commandments, and in the Hebrew there's a change in pronouns. And the bride says, stop. If we hear any more, we're going to die. So what that means then is the marriage is not consummated. So at that point, we get tablets of stone. Tablets of stone were always plan B. They were never plan A. So when the bride says stop, what God says is she has a heart of stone. She will not have my words written on her heart. But my words are for her. She has agreed to the covenant. All that God has said we will do. So there's an agreement. They are formally engaged, but the marriage is not yet consummated. 
So what God does is says, all right, you've got a heart of stone, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to write the contract on tablets of stone that you're going to schlep around for the next several thousand years until you develop a heart of flesh that will accept my words being written directly on it. So the consummation doesn't happen until revelation. You know, when the new Jerusalem comes down, I will read it for you. Revelation 21, starting in verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. That's when we meet the bride. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal, and it had a great high wall and twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels. And on the gates the names of twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed, on the east three gates, and on the north three gates, and on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Everybody involved here is Hebrew. Now, Gentiles get invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Gentiles are not left out, but the bride is Israel. And she was intended to be the bride back at Sinai. And since we didn't have a consummation, all of this thousands of years that have happened since have been the process of preparing the bride. So, let's talk about covenants. With the exception of the covenant of Noah, there are no covenants with Gentiles in Scripture. Zero, zip, zilch, nada. They're all covenants with Israel. And Israel, at the foot of the mountain, said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. So the question becomes, those people several thousand years ago, accepted a covenant with God. Upon whom is that covenant binding? That's the question I want to start talking about. That's the bulk of the talk. All the rest of the stuff we did is just by way of background. On whom is the covenant binding? Now, one of the things that has become very popular in our culture today is the attitude that if I didn't agree to it personally, I don't have to obey it. That is very prevalent in our culture right now. What happens then is you have this covenant that's made at Sinai, and people today will say, well, I didn't stand at the Sinai. Those people can't make decisions for me. I get to make my own decisions. Does that sound familiar to you? Variations on that? Have you heard, for example... I don't agree with the sex that I was assigned at birth. And they're, they're serious. Or they say they're serious. They're actually fruitcakes, but they say they're serious. They're serious fruitcakes. And that all stems from this idea that the only thing binding on me are the things that I personally agree with. Do you see the sequence there? It's really important because that attitude negates the covenant that was made at Sinai. It negates the new covenant which was sealed by the blood of Messiah. Everything is negated up until the time of the birth of the individual and then the individual gets to decide what am I going to be? 
What am I going to observe? What's binding on me? What do I agree to? And that's where we are today. We've now had a society that for the last several thousand years has been working their way up through this process. This didn't just sort of start the next day after Sinai. It's been a long process getting to where we are. But the heart of it is, I do not want to be bound by anything I don't agree to. That starts with the fruit in the garden. It then goes to hearts of stone. It then goes to antinomianism. Everything flows from that. And when I said at the beginning in my introduction what God did when he defined who the bride was, is he defined who the bride was so as to give her the maximum possible freedom. All you have to be is honor your parents, not a murderer, not an adulterer, not a thief, not covetousness, not a slanderer. That's it. Or all you have to do is don't eat that tree. That's it. That's all there is. And we, with our hearts of stone, don't accept it. And what we're seeing today in our society is the outworking of that lack of acceptance. And what we are is up to our hips and fruitcakes right now. In fact, to sort of dip off into politics for just a second, one of the things that propelled the election of Mr. Trump was people are just tired of weirdos. And we're tired of weirdos being shoved into our faces. So we elect somebody who's not a weirdo, who doesn't pander to weirdos. But understand that it all comes from the attitude of the only thing binding on me is what I personally agree to. Let me give you a progression, at least in my lifetime. It's been going along longer than my lifetime. I know you all are young kids and much younger than I am, but in my lifetime, I can remember being in Washington, D.C. when I still listen to NPR, National Public Radio. And the discussion among these very erudite people was, well, what are we going to do about the poor? Because if you're poor, you don't have any opportunities. If you're poor, there's all sorts of problems. So we need to fix this. We need to give them welfare. But if we give them welfare and they got a working father in the family, then the father should work and so forth. So what it became was much easier to get the father out of the way because it paid better. And I read an interesting commentary back then. And they said, what are you trying to do? Make people dependent? And they said, no, what we're trying to do is destroy the concept of father. Because if you don't have a concept of your earthly father, you cannot relate to your heavenly father. We want to destroy that concept. Then the next thing we decide is we're going to destroy the concept of the family. Then we're going to destroy the concept of male and female, which is where we are now. These things are all systematically being destroyed. And the whole purpose of it is, is so that it disrupts your relationship to God and it turns you into something that is not fit to be the bride. That's the catechism. That's satanic. That's the program. And it's been going on for a long time. And it's up front. I mean, they're not even trying to hide it. The whole purpose is to get us back to the garden where the snake can tell us, you shall be as gods. That's the lie. You shall be as gods. You can decide that the sex you were assigned at birth isn't you, and so I'll be something else. You can decide, eh, 
I don't care about this person that I have a covenant with, so I'm going to go off and do something else. You can decide all of these things now for yourself because you are as gods. And, of course, that's the lie. Now, the problem we have today is you are absolutely free to violate the covenant. What you are not free to do is choose the consequences of violating the covenant. In other words, God's reality will snap you up short when you violate his covenants. There will be diseases. There will be failures in business. There will be all sorts of consequences to not doing things God's way. You may choose not to do that. I mean, none of you have if you wouldn't be sitting here. But if you want to, you may choose not to obey God's word and not to be involved in the covenant. You may choose that. But what you don't get to choose are the consequences. And so when Israel chooses not to obey God's covenant, the next thing they know, they're up to their hips and Midianites. That's just a consequence of not following the covenant. The next thing that happens is they're off to Babylon. Ooh, don't like going to Babylon, but sorry, you didn't follow the covenant. So reality is something that our society, or at least a segment of our society, really doesn't like. So that's where we are. Now, I'm going to switch gears on you. We're going to talk about wine. A little bit of joy here, right? I've been listening to Ronald Dart. Some of you heard part of this in Midrash. And I'm sorry Tim Baruby's not here because he adjusted my thinking and he got something really right and I hadn't understood it until he said it. And all of a sudden everything just went click. We're going to come back to reality here, but let's talk about wine for a minute. Wine is a symbol of joy. What's the first miracle that Yeshua does? He turns water into wine, doesn't he? At a wedding. A wedding. We're back at Sinai with the marriage covenant now. It's a tenuous connection, but there will be a connection here. So the first thing that Yeshua does is he turns water into wine at a wedding. And what does the host of the party say? Everybody serves the good stuff while everybody's sober. And then when everybody gets a little bit into their cups, then they bring out the rot gut. And what you've done is you have saved the best for last. Now, I'm going to read to you from Luke chapter 5. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece with the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Now, that's where people sort of stop. And the idea here is Yeshua is bringing new wine into the old wineskins of Judaism, right? Isn't that the Christian catechism? Wrong. Absolutely wrong. Read the next verse, Luke 5:39. And no one after drinking old wine desires the new, for he says the old is good. So it is in fact the case that the new wine is not good. It's the old wine that's good. Yeshua said it, I didn't. It's right there, black and white. So what's that mean? What's the old wine? The old wine here is Torah, the written word of God. Yeshua never says anything against Torah. What he says is stuff about Jewish tradition, the religion that had grown up since the Babylonian exile, Pharisaic Judaism. 
And he's saying that's the new wine and it's bursting the wineskins which is the old wine of the Torah. Every time Yeshua speaks, he says, it is written. Never speaks against Moses. He does speak against Judaism. Now, Christians poke fun at the oral Torah and the rabbinic Judaism and they say that's all bad. I will suggest to you that the Christian church has its own new wine which is just as bad as the Jewish new wine. We have our same oral traditions, traditions of the fathers and so forth that go against Moses that are every bit as much new wine as the oral Torah is new wine. And Yeshua speaks against both of them. We have our Christmas trees, we have our Easter bunnies, we have our Halloween, we have all of these traditions of men that we have brought in from paganism that are new wine, which are bursting the old wine of Torah. In fact, I heard some idiot on Christian radio the other day, call in show, asking about the Bible. And he says, what about Shabbat? And he says, oh, nobody ever celebrated Shabbat until Sinai. And that's all done away with. That's the old covenant, that's the old stuff, and it's done away with. We don't have to do any of that anymore. That's new wine in old wineskins. And what it's done is burst the old wineskins, which is the Torah. That wineskin has been burst. It's burst by the Jews with their rabbinic traditions. It's burst by the Christians with their Sunday traditions and all of the stuff that they brought in with them. The old wine is good. The old wine is Torah. The old wine is Moses. It is written. And that's what Yeshua says. In fact, I've heard Sunday preachers say, well, you don't want to listen to the words of Yeshua because he's preaching the law. You want to listen to Paul. Well, Paul's a great guy. I like Paul. And if you know what you're reading, Paul is perfectly sound and he also teaches Torah. He's teaching Torah to dumb Gentiles instead of to Hebrews. He's talking to people who don't know nothing. And he's explaining Torah to those people. Paul's great. But if you're making new wine, it's fairly easy to fit Paul into a new wineskin. And you wind up with exactly the same thing that the Pharisees did to Judaism. No difference. So, what I'm suggesting to you is the bride, Israel, is in the process of having her heart prepared. And her heart will not be fully prepared until the end, the end of Revelation. I mean, not even early in Revelation, late in Revelation. But that's the bride. And what will happen when the bride finally accepts circumcision of the heart, writing the Torah on her heart of flesh, however you describe it, it's in every prophet just about. Certainly it's in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, clear as a bell. Covenants with Israel, where Israel finally accepts the word of God that God offered at Sinai and writes the word on their hearts. And then the end comes. So this whole process, which starts at Sinai, remember I said at the beginning we have ten words of creation, ten plagues of destruction, ten words of recreation. Something started over. And that starting over goes until Revelation 21. And at that point there will be a reformation of all things. The heavens and the earth will roll up like a scroll. 
there will be a new heaven and a new earth and the bride will be there with the word of God written on her heart like he wanted from the beginning. Revelation 22, starting in verse 16. I, Yeshua, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. And the water of life will once again flow from Jerusalem. Not yet, but it will.